0: Bond yields neither predict nor depict the consumer price index, rather they quite accurately forecast and realistically reflect inflation. interesting it sounds very esoteric. it sounds like a paradox we're going to understate we're going to unpack that statement with the help of the man that wrote it. Jeff Snyder, the head of Global research for alhambra partners jeff we're going to do a two part special part one we're going to be focusing on the nineteen fifties bond markets and inflation in the United States. And then in part 2 we're going to move to the 1960s, 1970s and more recent years, 2000s and uh try to I guess what will be what will be the Aesop's fable, the the lesson, life lesson out of these two uh episodes. Jeff, how would you summarize it? Well, we're
1: trying to get at the the CPI depicts consumer prices and we're really trying to figure out What is behind an increase or lack of increase in consumer prices? And I think, again, inflation is an emotional topic for for very good reasons, which we've talked about, because it's the most painful thing. And it's something that you notice every time you go to the grocery store when it happens. Yet what we're trying to do is say, this is different from this. The CPI goes up under certain circumstances for certain reasons, and those reasons are something else. And then there are other times when the CPI goes up for reasons. And then it tends to stay up for, for reasons that are monetary in nature. And so we're trying to figure out, can we decide, can we sort out between consumer price increases that are due to money, therefore inflation, or some other consumer price increases that are due to other factors, which would make them transitory or temporary? Because as we all know, real inflation, which is sustained consumer price increases, is always and everywhere monetary phenomenon. So, if there isn't the money system behind it, there isn't the money growth and the money overgrowth, whatever you want to call it, behind the consumer price increases, it's not really inflation. So we're not really saying that consumer prices didn't go up. We're trying to tell you that, okay, maybe they went up for other reasons, and that in identifying other reasons, that will help you understand what's actually happening and what maybe what we can do about it. And so, you know what we're really trying to do is, okay, as we're sorting through the CPI, we're trying to make sense of is there some is there some tools out there that we can lean on to help us discern which which one is which which is consumer price increases for non-economic factors which is consumer price increases for monetary factors, and is there a way we can tell the difference
0: as we approach our workbench, we see several tools lying there uh, one of them is labeled Bloomberg, the other one is cNBC third one's financial media and then there's a fourth one that says. US sovereign bond market. And that one's very shiny, but it's also been put to use for decades, for generations. It's a tool that's uh welcome, useful, helpful, and is uh well, how do we describe this? It? The Swiss Army knife? What's that one tool that you can always count on and use? I don't know, Jeff, but whatever that tool is, that's what we're gonna be saying the bond market is. We're gonna start out with an essay that you wrote at the Real Clear Markets blog post, blog site. And it was called, The Federal Reserve's Policy Deficit Has Always Been About Money, posted on the 29th of October, 2021. We're going to go all the way back to 1950, the U.S. economy, and you inform us that in the first six months of 1950, the U.S. economy was rip-roaring. Why was it rip-roaring? It was rebounding.
1: It was rebounding from a really nasty recession in 1949, plus there are all sorts of positive contributions from, you know, general uh, secular factors recovering still, the world recovering from the aftermath of the Great Depression and World War II, so there are positive factors there as well, plus the initial surge out of the recessionary trough, especially uh, early first, as I said, first half of the 1950s. So the economy was already expanding in, you know, double-digit rates. I think GDP was growing at. You know, better than twelve percent in both quarters, so it was actual legitimate economic recovery at that time in the first half of nineteen fifty
0: that's right so from november nineteen forty eight to october nineteen forty nine we are told that there was a recession It was eleven month recession, unemployment reached seven point nine percent, and the peak to trough decline in gross domestic product was one point seven percent doesn't sound like a lot, but let's not forget, of course, we're not just measuring what actually took place, but what was missing, we're anticipating growth. So we didn't get the growth that we should have been getting for those 11 months, plus there was an actual decline. And to your point, in the first quarter, GDP grew 16.6% at an annual rate. And then the second quarter, 12.8%, unbelievable, huge. But you draw to our attention that consumer spending was not powering this rebound and you draw our attention to something else. Why?
1: Well, because first of all, you know, I think the point that you just made about the business cycle is a good one is that, you know, in the initial recovery period, it's not just that we start growing again. There's that catch up, right? We had this period and it was an entire year where growth was missing. Not only was, you know, the economy in contraction, but we missed out on a lot of growth. And so a real recovery usually starts out with, okay, we're starting to go back in the right direction. We have to make up for this year that we lost in terms of lost growth. So there's, you know, there's businesses that reinvest, there's inventory that needs to be restocked. There's all sorts of all sorts of those types of catch up processes that are usually that begin the recovery trend that are more focused on getting the economy moving back in the right direction. It isn't necessarily due to consumers who kind of come in later when things are really starting to go well because remember businesses are just starting to rehire they're they're just starting to reinvest and do these all these all these other recovery type processes
0: that's right you note that over half of the first quarter's increase in gdp was due to just businesses restocking that's going to be very important because in this third quarter what we saw was consumer spending surging a wild frenzy to purchase goods which should sound familiar for modern viewers, but Jeff, it wasn't the coronavirus that convinced consumers they needed to buy goods now immediately and stock them away. It was something else, something that happened in late June, 1950.
1: You wouldn't imagine it, but in in the second, as you said, the third quarter of 1950, consumer spending was at such a pace that it would it put what's gone on this year to shame. It was such an enormous wave of consumer consumer, you know. Um, Whatever the word, whatever kind of word you might want to use, frenzy, f- binge. Uh, something, binge. Yeah, it's just it would consumers just went nuts, but they had a legitimate reason, and that's that's kind of where we're getting to here. On June 24th of 1950, uh, it doesn't sound like these two events would be connected, but the North Koreans invaded South Korea and therefore triggered the Korean conflict. Now, how does that lead to American consumers going completely crazy? Well remember, 1950 was only half a decade away from World War II and consumers in their living, very vivid memories understood what national war and conflagration actually meant in terms of the economy. It meant rationing, it meant hardship, it meant, it meant you had to buy stuff while it was available. And so as soon as those first shots were fired in Korea, Americans realized what was coming. If the If the United States was going to join the Korean conflict, which looked very likely from the very beginning, They knew very eventually the government, the federal government under Truman was going to start rationing and cracking down and and, uh, cutting back on what was be available in terms for consumers to buy and and, uh, use. So they quite naturally bought everything they possibly could, knowing that uh, at some point in the not too distant future, those goods that were available in the second in the third quarter of 1950 would not be available very widely going forward during
0: the war. It's hard to believe today 21 years into the 21st century but governments would ration during war at least back then and not very long after the uh the invasion by North Korea in September the United States Congress passed something called the Defense Production Act September 1950 and what was that that basically gave the government a lot of control over what price controls and wage controls and production and governing industry
1: in general. The government could come in and say, look, we need you to build this for us because this is a war and national survival is at stake. So you used to make cars, General Motors. Now you're going to make tanks, whether you like it or not. And again, you know, that's, that was, I mean, people accepted that. I mean, in World War II, it's easy to accept that kind of government control, given the nature of the struggle at hand, even Mm -hmm. though Korea wasn't the same, same level of, of national struggle as World War II had been. Consumers rightly understood what Truman was going to do because that's in very short, I mean, the, the president was very honest in saying, look, this is what we're going to do. You know, the, the Defense Production Act was sent, essentially the sort of the anticlimactic uh, uh, part of that process, which was, we're going to start taking over certain parts of the industrial economy because we got to manufacture things for the war.
0: There's a description, an act to establish a system of priorities and allocations for materials and facilities. Authorize the requisitioning thereof. Provide financial assistance for expansion of productive capacity and supply. Provide for price and wage stabilization. Provide for the settlement of labor disputes. Strengthen controls over credit. And by these measures, facilitate the production of goods and services necessary for the national security, and this is my favorite part, comma, and for other purposes. Ladies and gentlemen, you will not be surprised That that was passed in September 1950. The Korean War was over-ish a few years later, right? Three years later, if I remember. All right, people will say, well, the Cold War continued. Yeah, that was over in 91. Jeff Snyder, I'll give you three guesses, and the first two don't count as to whether or not this act is still on the books to this very day and is being used by each president, and the last use of it was by pre- uh, President Biden because of fires in the West, in the United States. It's unbelievable that such a thing never sunset, but maybe that's just me. Let's get back to the economics. So this was... yeah, the, yeah.
1: From the nature of government to the nature of economics, right? And so those things are sometimes intertwined. But, you know, it's amazing, or not amazing, but standard kind of standard procedure that, you know, uh, governments power, all that stuff would flow through an economic system and usually at the expense of people, folks, and consumers.
0: So the United States uh, consumer was correct. They anticipated that they needed to buy like crazy because all of a sudden the goods may not be available. Good shortage, sounds familiar. And over the next couple of quarters, you note that it's sort of, there's this alternating between consumer spending surging, pulling back, inventory surging, pulling back. It sounds familiar. It sounds like chaos. And then where do we go from there? I guess you segue to prices. Tell us what is happening to prices. You have some dates here, June 1950, July, acceler- went from a negative to a positive. Tell us what was happening to yeah, prices. As you would
1: expect, in you know, the 1940s type of a recession, there had been outright deflation in consumer prices throughout 1949 that extended into 1950. Now consumer prices were already rebounding in the first half of 1950 as we said the recovery starting to manifest and it was it was a uh, consumer prices going back up a little bit of reflation in that in that respect but in the in July of 1950 all of a sudden consumer prices just absolutely surged and again they did so in a way that makes the consumer prices of this year look tiny by comparison so the CPI turned positive in July 1950 on an annual basis But it truly accelerated from, I think it was July 1950 until February 1951, which was, you know, an eight-month period where consumer prices were rising at a, I think it was 12 or 13% annual rate, which is, you know, puts 5% annual rates to shame.
0: Exactly. And we can see why. But the question is, was it due to…
1: Consumer demand, restricted supply… Small e economics, simple supply demand curves that show us that prices have to adjust, right? If people are willing to buy a whole lot of goods that are, aren't really widely available, they're going to bid for them. They're going to pay whatever they have to, especially if you believe that I have to buy this good today or I may not get it for many years down the road because it's going to be denied to me. It's, you know, again, it's the same exact mechanics as we have in 2021 only this time at an even
0: bigger scale. Now we're going to talk about what the bond market reaction was to this. Spoiler alert, or lack thereof, but uh, erudite smart listeners to the show will say, well, of course there was much of a reaction because there was this whole 1950, 1951 Federal Reserve, U.S. Treasury, U.S. Treasury was controlling the Fed so there were caps on yields and all that sort of stuff. Tell us tell us about, before we talk about bond prices, just set the scene. What was the Federal Reserve thinking when they were seeing these consumer price increases? What was the treasury? What was the relationship between these two entities?
1: Well, going back to 1942 and World War II, the Treasury Department had said, hey, we're fighting a war. We don't want the government to be disrupted in financing this war. So your job, Fed, because you screwed up the Great Depression so bad, we're just going to give you a little little job to make sure the bond market doesn't blow up. So you cap long-term interest rates implicitly. You cap sh- uh, short-term Treasury bill rates explicitly. And therefore, you know, we'll, we'll let you keep it yourself in business. But you do what we say, which is our, your primary focus, Federal Reserve, is to make sure there's enough cash flowing through the system so that the government doesn't have a busted auction because we're fighting a war here. And so we fast forward to 1950. We got the Korean conflict and the Treasury Department under a guy named Snyder with a Y, not an I. Uh, and President Truman expected, hey, this relationship that, that's, that began in World War II with the Federal Reserve is the same. Treasury is the top dog here. The Federal Reserve is an afterthought. Your job, Fed, is nothing more than make sure that the government can sell its debt because we have to fund this war. And the, In the Federal Reserve over there, they were saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we can do more here. We think we're pretty smart people. We understand the way things are going. And by the way, we see consumer prices creeping up. We're getting really concerned that this is gonna turn into an inflationary nightmare on top of trying to fight the war. So maybe we need to reprioritize monetary policy so that instead of we make sure the, the treasury can sell its bonds, maybe we let interest rates move around a little bit and prioritize instead consumer prices because they seem to be getting out of control here and maybe this is a good time for the fed to assert its own independence because for the good of the nation we think we think we know what we're doing
0: now the war and the wars there's an intermission between the two and i'm thinking of the years 1947 1948 because what you just described with respect to the fed and inflation and consumer prices surging this wasn't the first time this had happened in recent years can you tell us a little bit about what happened in 1947, 1948, how, again, we thought there was going to be inflation and the Fed should do something. And then within a year, they said, well, never mind.
1: It's actually the, th- 1950 was actually the third time. Uh-huh. And the first time was 1936, when the Fed got all concerned about inflation mm. during the Great Depression and said, we're going yeah. to raise the reserve requirement, which resulted in a depression within the Depression in 1937. So strike one on the Fed and its inflation flaying capabilities there. As you met, just mentioned, Emil, 1947, 1948, again, consumer prices absolutely surged. And this time it was, again, a supply shock because European nations started to buy lots of goods as they recovered from the ashes of World War II. The Fed said, oh my God, this is inflation. We better start buying long term treasuries because the treasury market's going to fall apart. It's going to blow up. And then within, I think it was eight months, they started to sell those bonds back because treasury yields didn't rise. In fact, we headed into a deflationary recession in 48 and 49, as we just said. So, Inflation panic in 47, strike two. No, 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 this time is for sure, 1950. No, we, we're absolutely positive. This time the treasury market will blow up or at least we're good, the inflation, if we don't do anything, inflation is going to get out of control. We're absolutely serious this time. We're so serious that during the second half of 1950, as the Korean conflict is getting underway, the Federal Reserve created a scandal. By publicly opposing Treasury's policy and creating an enormous amount of difficulty that hit the newspapers worldwide because they said, this is our line in the sand. We are willing to risk this fiasco, this political problem, because we believe inflation is really getting out of control. Have you seen the CPI lately? And they decided we're going to, this is it, we're going to resist uh, being placed under Treasury's control Because we think it's important to get control over this inflationary eruption.
0: In about a decade or so, Milton Friedman would say inflation is always a monetary phenomenon. And here we have a couple of examples of the Fed saying inflation is a consumer price phenomenon that will persist and be pervasive. What we're observing these supply shocks, demand surges. Okay, so two examples. Here's our third one. And in the, I mean, I've got the numbers here, Jeff, but basically what happened is uh consume no consumer prices were going up okay bond yields started to rise a little bit they went up from 2.19 the in deflation induced low you call it to 2.4 percent in march 1951 and eventually by the end of 1952 2.75 percent not really yeah <laughs> i don't know
1: what was so yeah so from the, the, the recession low in 49 is 2.19% to by the time of March 1951, which is an important date, March 1951 is the date, the month that the Federal Reserve actually achieved its independence from the, federal, uh, from the Treasury Department. And it's a, it's, a, it's a huge date in the history of the Fed. According to the Fed, they tell you this all the time because they said, we, we had to become independent of the Treasury because this inflation problem was so bad. And the bond market was, you know, as this, you know, 12 percent annualized rate of CPI during that eight month period was, was uh, you know, raging throughout the economy. The bond market was like, eh. you know, the long term treasury yield, they didn't have a five or 10 year specific maturity back then. They just kind of called it the long term bond yield. The long term bond yield went from 2.19 equivalent to 240. So it was a 30 basis point rise or so over 12 percent annualized consumer price uh, index increases. So the bond market was saying, yeah, consumer prices are going up by a lot, but we don't think it's going to last. Again, long-term bonds are looking at the long-term outlook. And as Irving Fisher noted over a century ago, long-term bond yields are a combination of growth and inflation expectations. So the the, the long-term bond market was saying... Okay, yes, we see consumer prices rapidly rising, rampantly rising you know for a, an eight month period is a pretty long period for that to go on, but then still saying we don't think it's going to last very long because as as a long term bond yield looking forward and growth from the next inflation expectations, we don't see consumer prices to continue to rise at nearly the same pace, so that's why the long term yield only rose a couple basis points during that uh the the outbreak of consumer price increases. In uh, late 1950 and early 1951, in fact, long-term bond yields rose a little bit more after that was over than it did during the period it was in. And even then, the, the uh, long-term yield only got up to about 270, which is not a huge move to go from 219 to 270. That's, that's pretty much nothing. So what bonds were saying is long-term growth and inflation, yes, consumer prices are rising rampantly and rapidly, but we don't see it as inflation. We don't think this is inflation. It didn't matter. At the same time, the Federal Reserve was going through all sorts of crazy, ridiculous schemes to try to remove itself from the Treasury. It did not matter that the Fed was saying, we're worried. We're so worried about inflation that we're willing to risk a political upheaval, a financial upheaval during the Korean War because we're so concerned about inflation. Bonds were just like, you guys are wrong. You have it all completely wrong. And guess what happened? (laughs) Spoiler alert here. March of 1951 was the first day, first month for the consumer price index to begin normalizing. So as soon as the Fed achieved its independence that inflation suddenly disappeared. And it wasn't because the Fed achieved its independence it was because as bond said this was a temporary bout of small e economics consumers going nuts buying goods that they knew they weren't going to be able to buy for a very uh in, in short order and that it wouldn't last because it was not a monetary outbreak that would cause consumer prices to rise in a sustained fashion.
0: So that's right. So for an eight month period, we had annualized rates of inflation of over 12% that resulted in all this political uh, upheaval. But then by the end of 1952 CPI, did I say inflation? I didn't mean to say it that way. Consumer prices rose by 12% 12% it's, it's, annualized it's, it's rate. It's
1: ingrained in your head. It's pounded I didn't in your mean head. to do which that. Is, that's part of our, you know, part of what we're trying to do yes. here is to get, you know, people to understand that, that not all CPIs are the same.
0: CPI by the end of 1952 was averaging or had come down to 0.75%. And by June 1953, it was half that at 0.37%. So the bond market was right, proven right. The Fed was proven wrong. Jeff. Any summary thoughts? I think you summarized it well there. We're going to move on to the 1960s, 70s, and early 2000s next. Any final thoughts?
1: I think it's interesting. The modern Fed was born in, in March of 1951, seeing inflation that wasn't inflation, was created by inflation scare, and when the Fed scared itself that there was inflation, when at the very same time, all they had to do was look at the bond market and say, oh, there isn't actually inflation.
0: And that was the third time too, Jeff.
1: Yeah, strike three at that point. And then, of course, the risk decade where we actually did get monetary inflation. I hate that term, but one of the worst bouts of a sustained inflation in economic history. And where the hell was the Fed then? So the fact that the Fed screwed up in the pre-1950 era, you know, strike three on inflation scares, didn't get the actual inflation right. That's, that's really how the Federal Reserve operates throughout its history. It's not some omniscient, omnipresent, you know, technocratic ideal. The Federal Reserve's history is torturous. They get everything wrong all the time.
0: Bond yields predict nor depict the consumer price index. Rather, they quite accurately forecast and realistically reflect inflation. That paradox seemingly Paradox was written by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research. And in part one, which we just finished, we discussed the 1950s, trying to discern the difference between consumer price indices and increases there and inflation, what some crazy people call monetary inflation. That's totally redundant. In part two, we're going to be discussing a blog post by Jeff at Alhambra Investments. It was blogged and posted on the 22nd of October. The title is do bonds accurately price inflation since before any of us were born? Now, Jeff, let's talk first principles, though, because in the beginning, you said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. This is kind of like asking, well, why does gravity pull us down towards the center? But Jeff, why, why is it always a monetary phenomenon, inflation?
1: Because without an overflowing, you know, condition of money where there's too much money chasing too few goods, if there isn't too much money, eventually, you know, we, we have consumer price changes all the time. We live in a dynamic world, it's a dynamic economy. But if there isn't that kind of monetary background, then what happens is you might get a burst of consumer prices, but eventually the economy will have to adjust to them. And over time, that adjustment will cause other prices to be dragged downward. So you have a balancing act. So you could have a rise in the CPI for a short period of time, but if it, unless it's monetary version of inflation, actual inflation, the economy will adjust to it and eventually prices will calm down or even come back down in certain, certain cases. So if it's not money, it's not really inflation. So if, if it's not really inflation and consumer prices are going up, then we would say they're probably not going to be able to go up for very long before the, the economy has to adjust to them which usually means that those the whatever's whichever's causing the, those prices, once everything's adjusted to those causes, those non-monetary causes, consumer prices will calm themselves back down again because as Milton Friedman said, inflation, inflation, actual inflation is a monetary phenomenon. So no money, no inflation. Therefore, if it's not money, it's not inflation, consumer prices must be for some other reason and those reasons are going to be transitory.
0: Without the money, It won't be so. Whatever else has to be responsible for consumer prices can only ever be transitory. First principles, Jeff Snyder. All right, Jeff, we have a graph that we looked at in the 1950s. We discussed that in part one, but we really only discussed the first half of the 1950s, didn't we? And it's starting in the second half of the 1950s when we start seeing money being created out of thin air in. Well, we're not quite sure where it was happening, but definitely in Europe, Britain, Japan. Well, we know
1: it wasn't happening, right, Emil? No, where? I think that's an important okay. point too, and it's a common misconception that 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 the last that lingers on to today. People think that the Fed prints the money. The Fed is print. The Fed is responsible. The Federal Reserve, central banks, are printing money, and it's important to point out that no, it's not Federal Reserve. It's not the central banks that print money. It's the private banking system. So, if we're talking about inflation, where does the money come from? Inflation. Well, we can blame the Fed, but not for printing the money, but for we blame the Fed for not stopping it, because that's really what its job would be, say, hey, you commercial banks are printing too much money, you need to knock it off, and we're going to penalize you for doing it. That's not really what happens. It's commercial banks print money that nobody really knows is money, therefore, central banks are sitting there with their, their heads up their butts saying, we don't really know what's going on here either, so we'll try to do something else. So that's really an important we we don't know where the money's coming from but we know one place it's not coming from
0: looking at this graph so you've got uh consumer price indices here the consumer price index plus various tenors of the US treasury market and in the 1950s if we look at it we can see sort of a a three hump camel From 1950 to 1954 we see a rise and fall 1954 to 1958 a rise and fall and i'm describing bond yields they're rising and falling 1958 1960 another hump rise and fall but each time putting in a lower higher high higher low and rising because in the 1950s as we've discussed in lots of other episodes money was being created out of thin air and you would think it would just continue but then now we're transitioning to the 1960s and we had a little bit of an interruption why was there uh why did the, the rising hump, three hump camel, not turn into a four, five, six, seven hump camel starting in the 1960s?
1: Well, first of all, you know, going back to the pre-1950s, middle 1950s, you know, the bond market essentially ignored these inflation panics by the Fed, right? We talked about 1936, we talked about 1947, and again in 1950. So consumer prices go through the roof, bond yields don't move. Somewhere around 1955, that begins to change where the bond yields start to go up, not just at the long end, but also at the short end, anticipating something. And as we know, Irving Fisher said in the early 1900s, long-term bond yields decompose into growth and inflation expectations. So the bond market began to sniff out this transition in the middle 1950s that said, we're starting to see some, yes, definitely more growth expectations because things were very good in the 1950s, but also maybe a little bit of inflation expectations too. And you're right, Emil, in the last part of the 1950s, you can see, I think it was 1957 forward, there's a very distinct difference between the way the Consumer Price Index behaved in that period, 1957, 58, 59, compared with 1950 or 1947 or 1936. No, not, there was nothing in 1936, but certainly 1947 and, and 43, I believe, was the other war shock too. So you see Consumer Price Index just spike, and then it comes way back down. But you know that happened in 43, it happened in 47 and 48, and it happened again in 1950 and 51. But in 1957, it was sort of, okay, no longer just a quick spike. It was a kind of a slow build rise. It didn't get very far before there was a double dip recession in the last half of the 50s. And that's, that's kind of what interrupted bond yields and led to that, that, the inf, that low inflationary period in the early 1960s. But already the bond market was starting to say, something is different here. The, last half of the 1950s, yields were behaving differently, and the consumer price index was behaving differently than it had before 1955.
0: And, uh, you know, there are different opinions as to when this started. Catherine Schenck wrote a paper that pointed to Midland Bank in 1955, in the summer of 1955, that they started doing euro dollar, they started offering dollars that maybe weren't on hand exactly, offshore dollars. And then Paul Einzig said He wasn't quite sure when it happened, but writing in the early 1960s, he said that already by the late 50s, this was taking place in London, this dollar creation business. So incredibly, the bond markets were sensing something, but we're entering the 1960s, everyone's favorite decade, and we begin it with a recession in the United States. So yields fall down and then they stay sort of flat until 1965. I'm... I guess they were flat to rising while inflation was flat and well below 2% this entire time. What can you tell us about the first half of the 1960s?
1: Yeah, again, it was a low inflationary period simply because of a lot of idiosyncrasies evolved with that time, government fiscal deficits, things like that, Fiscal, actually fiscal sanity. Um, plus, there's You know, this evolving globalization trend where there's dollars flowing outside the United States for reasons that certainly central bankers and many, quote unquote, experts didn't really fully understand or even really have any idea that was taking place. So you have a sort of a monetary black spot, too, that by the latter part of the 1960s, as we've discussed before, this euro dollar system, this developing euro dollar system more and more started to bleed back inside the United States as well. So you have bond yields that are sniffing out this monetary change in the 1950s, and then it sort of kind of goes quiet for a while. And then those dollars start to come back home into the United States. These are offshore dollars that US banks were borrowing from outside the United States. And suddenly you have a monetary phenomenon that by the 1963, 1964 is becoming a big process. Central banks start, the Federal Reserve in particular, starts talking about Euro dollars a little bit more. And as bond yields are rising, the consumer price index wasn't. It wasn't until 1966, 65, where the CPI went up, but yet bond yields were starting to rise as far back as 63. So again, the bond market started to say, something's changing here a couple years in advance of what was coming, which was the very leading edge of the great inflation.
0: And so for the second half of the 1960s, we see the consumer price index rising, And bond yields rising, and we would implicitly assume, well, it's rising because of the consumer price index. But we're making the point here, unlike some earlier episodes, this time we've got monetary creation powering this. Okay, now we're heading into the… Yeah,
1: and just to make the point again, you know, point out that the way inflation developed, actual inflation developed, was very distinctly different. You don't see these very short-term sharp spikes in inflation. It sort of just – it starts and then it goes on and on and on and on. And as you – when you map the CPI changes against these bond yields, what you see is bond yields rise in anticipation of the slow burn of actual inflation captured by these CPIs. And so bond yields are reacting – or actually they're being proactive about monetary inflation because they, you know, again – what goes on in the bond market is those who create the money are expressing their opinions on safe and liquid instruments. So if if, if the, the money creators are saying, we don't want safe and liquid instruments, we're going to sell them and have yields rise, anticipating that consumer prices are going to reflect these economic circumstances, that's a very clear message from the monetary system itself in advance of what's going to happen. So, you know, it's, it's not just that the CPI goes up, it's why the CPI goes up and You can see the differences in how the CPI goes up too.
0: Especially in the next graph that we're going to look at from 1967 to 1976. And what we see is again, bond yields rising steadily, but very interesting, Jeff, there's a two-part story to this decade that I've picked out here. In the first half, we see consumer prices and bond yields in agreement, but then just when you would think that bond yields should rip, roar higher when there's a oil embargo and chaos in actual consumer prices, no, no, it sort of ignored that that surge. It kept the bond yields kept rising, but not with the. You know, velocity, escape velocity to the moon that we saw in oil prices and consumer price indices.
1: Yeah, we had the recession in late 69, 1970 that knocked a little bit off the consumer price index and it didn't really change core consumer price index rates at all. And we talked about this in a, in a previous episode. You know, President Nixon and the, 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 the um, what did he say? The liquidity explanation was bullshit. I <laughs> mean, the, the uh, Oval Office tapes, uh, all that stuff, you know, Arthur Burns talking about 1970 recession, how it seemed like the laws of economics were no longer holding. Well, all they needed to do was look at bond yields. Bond yields were absolutely obeying the laws of economics. It's just that Arthur the Burns didn't know how money behaved inside these laws because money itself had changed. But those trading in bonds absolutely know the change, the evolution of money because they're the ones doing the evolving. And so in aftermath of the 1970 recession, almost very quickly, you know, some people were thinking, well, maybe the, the inflation episode is over with. Bond yields started to rise in anticipation of it resuming, even though it took, almost, uh, I think, about a year before the Consumer Price Index started to reflect the renewal of the great inflation. Bond yields were already on top of it beforehand. So that was the out of control money part. And then in October 1973, bond yields are already up. Inflation, uh, the CPI indexes are already rising pretty rapidly, pretty steeply at that point. And then in October 1973, you have the, the Arab-Israeli War, OPEC embargo, which simply added another supply shock on top of this other inflationary trend. And so what did the bond market do? As you you're just saying, Emil, the bond market said, well, we're only trading on inflation. We don't trade on supply shocks. And again, it's the same exact patterns we saw pre-1955 bond yields ignore the supply shock parts of consumer price index or consumer shock parts of the cpi and only respond to inflation so that's why bond yields undercut the cpi starting in 73 and 74 because there's the bond market is separating the components of the cpi for us it's saying this part's inflation this part is oil embargo supply shock and here we're telling you which one is which
0: guess what jeff if you fast forward 30 40 years to 2000 to 2021, which you do for us in the next graph, we can see that same process, but now in reverse. Now bond yields are falling. And when we have these temporary transitory surges in demand prices, consumer prices, the bond market, kind it looks through them. And there's several examples here, 2008, does everyone remember what happened to oil prices in the summer? The bond market was saying, no, (laughs) we're heading into a global monetary shortage. Then 2011, QE is money printing. As I've once said before, it was the biggest liquidity event since the little ice age, but the bond markets didn't think so, which would bring us then to the most recent time period. But before we get to the most recent time period, is there anything you wanted to add about 2008, 2011?
1: After having gone through this history, seeing how bond yields respond and seeing how the CPI changes, it's it's really, it's more than interesting. It's actually very important to see how the CPI since, two th- since 2007 looks more like it did and behaves more like it did before 1955. We've gone back into these short temporary spikes in the CPI, which the bond market ignores. Those bonds are saying these are, this is what's causing consumer prices to rise is not inflation. It's something else. That was absolutely the, No, and nobody today would make the, make the mistake of saying 2008 was inflationary, right? Nobody, yes, consumer prices rose often dramatically, but that wasn't inflation. Obviously it wasn't inflation because we were in the midst of a deflationary recession. It wasn't really a recession. So 2008, the bond market said this isn't inflation. It wasn't. 2011. Everybody said, this is inflation. Here it is, the money printing is coming home to roost. Bond market said, no, this is more like 1950 or 1947. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. So it's not just that bonds are behaving differently. Bonds are behaving differently than it had in that middle period between 55 and 2007 because something is different. And it's not just different in the bond market, it's different in how the CPI changes and evolves too. We've gone back to the CPI reflecting more like the pre-1955 era. It's almost like the entire system changed. Between 1955 and 2007, we operated one way, including the CPI, bond yields, all these other things. And then like, like 1955 and before, from 2007 to today, both bonds and the CPI behave, behave differently.
0: And then in 2017-18, bond yields rose, they considered whether or not maybe there was going to be a recovery. It was called globally synchronized growth. There was an exploration of that possibility. It didn't rise as high as some of the other points that we see on this graph, but they were considering the possibility before turning south. And that brings us to present day, Jeff, which looks like so many of these previous examples. Basically, we have a tremendous surge in consumer prices which if you turn on your financial media means inflation, means money printing, means the Federal Reserve has gone too far. Maybe they have, but guess what? We have this tool that is so shiny and has been used for four generations. And that tool says, no, no, this will be transitory.
1: Yeah, that tool says we're pre-1955, both not just the CPI, but actual inflation, as well as economic conditions, which if you remember pre-1955, was mostly dominated by the Great Depression in its aftermath, more deflation than not. So that's really what we're saying. I mean, what happened between 1955 and 2007? I mean, it, it's a mystery for the vast majority of the public. It's a mystery for central bankers and economists. But it's certainly not a mystery for anybody who's familiar with Eurodollar University, because that's the exact same period that the monetary system, this offshore monetary system, was in its most effective and over-effective operation. So, it, you know, what we're saying here is there are no coincidences. This is not coincidence that bond market has been able to sort out these differences in CPIs because the bond market is the monetary system itself telling you what it believes is going on in money and in the real economy. And so what the bond market said, 55 to 07, we're trading more on inflation, lack of inflation, actual inflation and money conditions. Whereas before 1955, as well as after 2007, The money's just not there. And if the money's not there, whatever's going on in consumer prices, it can't be inflation. It can't be a monetary reason. And therefore, it has to be something else. And because it's something else, it's not going to last. Now, when we say it's not going to last, that can mean a lot of different things. And we're not saying that consumer prices didn't go up. We're just saying it's not inflation. It's not money. It's some other kind of process at work here, which has very different implications.
0: And we're concerned this is my final thought on part two here jeff is if there's not money there there's not going to be enough money to power the economy to grow at a rate that we'll be satisfied with that's i think the real economic answer if we step out of you know inflation and all that sort of economic parlor talk for the real people we're worried there's not enough money that's what the bond market's saying and therefore the economic recovery is at risk the reflation We're concerned about it and whether or not it's gonna be sustainable. Ladies and gentlemen, what would you rather hear about than a remainder, a line labeled other on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet? Isn't that exciting? Isn't that interesting? I swear to you, it will be very interesting. We're gonna talk about some complex topics, but at the end of the day, there's going to be a very simple measure. Jeff Snyder found a remarkably simple one-line measure that says if this is going up, beware, be concerned. Now, the explanation of why that is may get complicated, but it's very educational. I thought this was one of the more innovative, unique, original pieces that Jeff has written in this year at least, let's say. Uh Jeff, enough about you. You you work for the who? For Alhambra Partners. You're the head of global research, and you wrote this on the twenty seventh of October. It's called China Central Bank Condition has consistently told you everything about global, not inflation. I yeah, think so the first it, yes. I don't go know ahead. if it's
1: going to be interesting, but it's definitely important. And really, as we say a lot around here at Eurodollar University, the you if you want to know something about the global monetary system, you want to know something concrete. One of the best places to look, maybe you don't believe it, believe it or not, one of the best places to look is the People's Bank of China's balance. And, that it, and maybe if you don't really know a lot about the monetary system or the, the way the global economy works, that sounds ridiculous. But once you start to put some of these pieces together and understand how it the, how the works inside that framework, it makes perfect sense. Because the Chinese are one of the biggest you know, biggest players in global, t- in terms of global trade and you know, moving stuff and goods around which means they have a very huge need for these U.S. dollars that are created outside the United States in this Euro dollar system. Therefore, China Euro dollars used to be a match made in Communist Party heaven, but ever since around, oh, I don't know, August 2007, it's been a more of a troubled marriage than anything.
0: And we've seen this in other countries in other periods leading up to the Great Asian Financial Crisis. I added great, the Asian Financial Crisis ninety seven ninety eight we saw the same thing. We saw rising foreign exchange reserves at the Asian tigers and the ASEAN nations. and then when the global regional dollar shortage occurred, things went into reverse. So if rising foreign exchange is a good thing and falling is a bad thing, what about dead, straight, unchanging? For months, what is that a, it signifies, signifies
1: manipulation? Right. I mean, we live in a dynamic world. It's like you don't expect straight lines to appear in nature because they don't appear in nature, and so you don't expect straight lines to appear in, in a dynamic system because what appears on the outside to be random, like nature, if you see a straight line, it can only be by human intervention. So if we see something like that, immediately your your uh, your curiosity should be raised and your inquisitiveness and skepticism because what you're seeing is OK, if something is being manipulated, why, really, what's, what's the purpose of manipulating something if everything's really going along is to plan?
0: Now, the good news is, Jeff, as we look at this uh, PBOC balance sheet as reported by the PBOC and by SAFE, we see that there's a rise, a rise recently in the assets. So this is great. Foreign assets are going up. So this is a good news uh, piece of news. At least we would think so. But you dove in deeper. Yeah, right.
1: It's it's the flood of money finally showing up in China. I mean, we've been talking about this for years now. The PBOC's foreign assets holdings on its balance sheet have been ridiculously straight and narrow and therefore no volatility whatsoever, which has already got our, our, our skepticism raised. And then all of a sudden in 2021, after hearing Jay Powell talk about his flood of digital dollar, about hearing about too much money and the reverse repo and everything else this year, Is it finally starting to reach the People's Bank of China's balance sheet, which is where it would reach if it were actually happening? So are we finally seeing all of these things being put together? The answer is, well, it requires a little bit more work because the level of foreign assets, even though that's the dominant portion of the balance, the asset side of the People's Bank of China balance sheet, it actually isn't just all foreign assets. There's actually three broad categories. By far the most is something called foreign exchange which is these assets that we're talking about. But there's also a couple other assets that included, including monetary gold, which we're gonna ignore sadly because the world ignores gold, not my rules. And then there's something else called other. And if you do this long enough and you get into a lot of these details long enough, what you'll see is there's always an other, there's always a miscellaneous somewhere. And usually this other and miscellaneous tends to be far more important than the name would otherwise suggest. Other makes it seem like it's just some stuff all the way at the end of the line. Who cares? It's back burner crap. When in fact, maybe this other is where everything important is.
0: Let me just make a very quick comment about the official gold holdings. Uh, China, the PBOC didn't report that there were any changes to their official gold holdings gradually, right? There wasn't any gradual increase. It just said all of a sudden, oh, by the way, we took on a thousand tons of gold this month, this quarter. They did that a couple of times, Jeff. You will not be surprised to learn that this occurred during Euro dollar crises. Coincidence? Absolutely not.
1: Yes, there are there are no coincidences when it comes to inflation, money, China, Eurodollars, Euro dollars or any of these things.
0: See, I mean they were accumulating the gold the whole time. It's just when they chose to report it. That's the point. When? For narrative purposes.
1: Almost like they're trying to portray confidence, right?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's a thousand tons here. Did you know that? Yeah, hey,
1: things are going bad, but look, we got a bunch of gold that we didn't tell you about. <laughs> Amazing, right? It's a, it's a complete mystery.
0: If you if you don't follow this show, you would think, well, that's just two random months. I wonder why they reported it. Those months stand out on the Euro dollar radar screen. It's like, oh yeah, well, I'm not surprised this is when they announced it. Okay.
1: And that's really, that's really what we're going to talk about here with other, for other foreign assets. It's the same thing. The correlations are, to, are so ridiculously on the nose. It almost seems like we have to be making, it almost would seem like we're making up these numbers to fit our narrative, when in fact they fit our narrative so, so easily and so well, it's because the People's Bank of China goes through these dollar periods and decides we got to do something about it. And we're really kind of limited in the ways that we can act. So we'll do this.
0: Let's go back uh, 14 years. We're looking at this chart right now from 2005 to 2009 where we see foreign assets other barely we don't see it really and foreign assets foreign exchange. Now until a certain yeah, a point, random a month, right? Month, <laughs> just a, those are low. Let's step. August yes.
1: 2007. Tell let's us. just pick that one out of thin air. <laughs> August 2000. I've heard mm. that one somewhere before. Incredible. So we have we have total foreign assets which is the, again by far the, the majority back then it was almost the entirety of the f- asset side of, of the people's bank of china balance sheet that's where all the money comes from and this is china's participation in the global economy where lots of dollars pre-crisis were flowing into china mud, many of which ended up on the people's direct hand or the communist party the government's direct hands which were which were placed in the in the central bank's uh, coffers not all of that though there are, others. there are other assets we just said. There's three different parts of foreign, foreign assets, one of which is foreign exchange, which are these organic euro dollars showing up in various Chinese hands, ending up on the government's balance sheet. And then there's this other that started rising, and it was always there as a as sort of a remainder, but it started rising specifically in August of 2007. Now, Not all euro dollars in foreign exchange ends up in the government's hands. Some of it, a lot of it, we don't know how much of it, ends up in their policy bank hands. They're not really private banks. They're state-owned large banks, you know, China Development Corporation and uh, the Import-Export Bank. Some of the other ones, the, the the big four there, they own their own sources of foreign exchange as well, as you would expect, because they're out there doing this foreign exchange trading business too. And in August of 2007, just... Out of the blue, randomly, the People's Bank of China said, you know, as part of your reserve requirements in domestically, we're going to start this month for reasons, we're, I mean, just random reasons, we're going to require that you start depositing at the PBOC some of your dollar holding. And we're going to report that under other foreign assets in terms of what the PBOC holds when actually these are dollar deposits of their local big banks as part of the reserve requirement. Why August of 2007? Most people to this day can't tell you. Even these Chinese, China watchers and experts don't seem to connect the dots here. But when you realize the, the significance of the euro dollar dollar shortage, why would China start making its own constituent banks start holding these dollar deposits with the central bank specifically in August of 2007?
0: Now you also have a couple of dashed lines here that depict the rate of change. And so we see in August 2007 that we have this, they would separate these two lines from each other, right? The just foreign exchange all of a sudden takes a severe drop, but maybe it's going to make a comeback. Maybe this was a one-off. Let's not worry about it. I mean, we'll worry about it, but we're back onto the euro dollar choo-choo train and we're powering forward all the way until... March 2008 and then we see both of these lines take a a completely different lower rate of growth a, a break it's the break is what i'm trying to say we observed maybe a a wobble we're back to where we were They ignore the wobble then no there's a complete break with the past
1: right it's sort of like what we remember of the global financial crisis right there was a first phase and then there was a second phase and the second phase was the terrible phase and the first phase was pretty bad but you know, even then, it seemed like, OK, this this maybe isn't, isn't horrible, this isn't earth shattering. And you can see that's kind of what happened from the People's Bank of China's perspective. They said, well, foreign exchange is something's going on there. We're starting to see some disruptions in the global dollar markets. Maybe if we have our banks pour, push some of their foreign reserve assets onto our balance sheet, that will kind of fill in the gap. And as we said before, maybe that will instill a bunch of confidence in the system. See, look, we still have the same foreign assets even though the composition is a little bit different. You can see it's it's sort of one of those, I mean, something's not going right, but maybe it's not awful. So we'll just plug in the hole with this this deposit liability, this dollar deposit liability. We're going to force on our local banks. We're reported under other their financial assets for ourselves. And maybe it'll all just go away. I mean, the Federal Reserve in December of 2007, there's TAF auctions, there's dollar swaps. Maybe that'll fix the crisis and we only need to do this temporarily.
0: They did sort of do it temporarily because then they pursued another path. Now that we're looking at this other chart, we see these other foreign assets stop their exponential surge right at the time when all of a sudden the Chinese exchange rate to the U.S. dollar was pegged, frozen, dead solid. What does this mean, Jeff? Is it a coincidence?
1: We don't really know. I, don't, I doubt it's a coincidence, but I, I mean, it's, it's probable that the dollar problem got really bad in the summer of 2008, which is the time period you're talking about. This is when we start to see even China saying, hold up here, something really bad's going on, right? And so even the Chinese are starting to make, make changes in how they operate The Chinese Yuan, at an almost 45 degree angle, all of a sudden stops and it goes sideways, it's clearly pegged from that point forward, which is the second half of the global financial crisis. And I got to believe that at that point, these Chinese banks that had been forced into these dollar deposit situations with the Chinese central bank were saying, we're having dollar problems here. We can't put more of our dollar deposits with you because we might need them for our own purposes. And so the People's Bank of China said, what can we do? Can we make them continue to put dollar deposits up with us that they can't use in foreign exchange markets? No. So everything changed in the summer of 2008, which was The Chinese way of letting the world know something else had changed for the worse, not for the better, as most central bankers had thought in summer 2008, that the dollar system had gone for the worst long before we ever got to Lehman, long before we ever got to AAG. As collateral problems were erupting, the LIBOR spread was still going on. The People's Bank of China's balance sheet and its balance sheet actions had told you things were going in the wrong direction, not the right direction.
0: Jeff, let's talk about the next euro dollar phase, the euro, the European sovereign debt crisis. We've got the same graphs. We've moved forward from 2009 to 2012. And again, we've got foreign assets, total, foreign exchange, and then foreign assets, the other. And then you provide us again, the Chinese currency. When the Chinese currency is going up, great. When other foreign assets are going down, great. But foreign exchange... Okay, I mean, tell me. That's
1: the thing, though, right? It, you know, at at that time, foreign exchange, at, at least in 2010, seemed like, okay, global financial crisis is just a one-off problem. We don't, we, it seems to be going back to normal, at least for China. Maybe there's a new normal in the United States and Europe and the developed world. For, for China, it seems like maybe we're getting back into the normal swing of things until, of course, early 2011, when we start to see the things start to fall apart in exactly the same way as they had. In 2008, collateral, repo, derivatives, those kinds of things. And so the Chinese are saying, "Uh, um, what do we do about of a, a drop-off in foreign exchange? Now we're not we're not seeing foreign exchange decline, but we're starting to see some uh, some conditions change. The rate of change goes down, and then eventually it stops altogether. Can we make up the gap with this other foreign asset? Can we go back to the, the these Chinese banks and say?" We need you to post more dollar deposits and shift those private foreign reserves that you have onto the public balance sheet to make it look like the dollars are still flowing. And the answer was no. And you have to wonder, is it because the, foreign, the these Chinese banks, these big, large state-owned banks were saying, we're having our own dollar problems, dude. You gotta do this yourself. Uh, PBOC, yes, you're our boss and we gotta do what you say, but you gotta give us some slack here. We can't post any more U.S. dollar, many more of our U.S. dollar reserves because we might need them ourselves. And so what you see is in the 2011 crisis as opposed to the first part of the global financial crisis is that this other foreign asset, this dollar deposit, if that's what it, if that's what it really is, it's sort of like a last resort tactic. It's like we only do this if we have no other choice because you know it's a it's a hardship for these banks that are that clearly don't want to do this. And it's not just, oh, we don't want to do it because it's a pain in the butt. It's, we don't want to do this because we've got our own dollar problems. So when we see other foreign assets start to rise, we have to wonder if that's because maybe things, the PBOC doesn't have another choice. There's really not, the conditions must warrant some kind of, of last resort type of intervention.
0: We see another peg, but it's occurring now in foreign exchange, whereas before we observed it in the currency. So for this time period, we see the currency rising, signaling everything's okay, but it's incongruent with the foreign exchange holdings, which are now frozen. That's-
1: which just gets into the real complications that are going on here. So something changed in 2011 where the Chinese said, we're just gonna target a level of foreign exchange on our balance sheet. And how are they, how are they doing that? And I think part of the answer is they're engaging in swap transactions and what we call contingent liabilities almost certainly with these, these uh, large state-owned banks that, that we've been talking about before. So they're not asking the state-owned banks to, to openly and publicly post reserves that would show up as other foreign assets. They're instead engaged in probably stealth transactions with these same banks to use their foreign assets as the PBOC's foreign assets without calling them, you know, without, without classifying them as, as uh, visible public deposits. And it gets into this complicated tangled soup and mess and destruct i mean disorder of basically stealth interventions. but we can tell it's going on because foreign exchange the level of foreign exchange just completely goes flat and which is again flat straight flat lines, sideways lines are in nature are a a, a perfect example or perfect indication of manipulation human beings doing something specific
0: Now we move on to the third euro dollar crisis, a regional dollar shortage that occurred right in China. And we're looking at the same graph, uh, Jeff. We've got foreign assets, other foreign exchange, the rate of change. What can you tell us about this particular moment in time and what we can interpret from the balance sheet?
1: Well, from the Chinese perspective, from 2013 forward, it really got serious. You know, if it was just sort of you know, mildly annoying to certain, you know, p- partly troubling, uh, 2008 up to 2012, 2013 forward, it was like, okay, now this is a real problem. And what they decided to do in the uh, the outbreak of the third global dollar shortage in the series was, well, let's just start plugging our foreign assets, the public foreign assets, this foreign exchange assets on the PBOC's balance sheet, we'll start using them to fill in this this dollar gap because well, we haven't really tried that. And maybe that'll work. But the other thing is that the dollar problem in the in 2014-15 must have been so enormous that they really didn't see any other way around it. And notice also, you can see in our charts that we're presenting, that PBOC did not again require dollar deposits from its local banks, from the big four big four state-owned banks. You know, there's no increase in other foreign assets. In fact, the most prominent part of that that series is August of 2015 which many people might remember for what happened with the Chinese exchange or Chinese currency exchange rate.
0: It dropped a couple of percent. In a single day. Uh, overnight, <laughs> yes.
1: It yes. was an enormous disruption in the summer of 2015 when, again, everything was supposed to be going correctly. The world inflation, best jobs market in decades, everything's fine. We're, we're going into global recovery when the Chinese are saying, what the hell are you talking about? It's chaos out here in the, in the real world. And the, that chaos finally really hit home in August of 2015 when you can see the, the People's Bank of China actually pushed those dollar deposits that were still on their books into the banking system. They took these other foreign assets and the level just dropped, coincident with CNY's drop, which tells you the dollar shortage had gotten so bad in aug- early August of 2015 that these, these Chinese banks were saying, give me our dollars. We need our dollars back from you. We got to use them, and it still it wasn't enough because CNY absolutely cratered. in, I think it was August 10th or August 11th of 2015. So the, again, these things are not coincidence. It's not just random. We're seeing all of these things line up perfectly, where other foreign assets on the PBOC's balance sheet are likely dollar deposits of the, of the of their state-owned banks that state-owned banks don't want to leave on deposit with the central bank, especially during times of trouble. So if the PBOC is saying, I need these dollar deposits from you. I'm going to put them in my own foreign, other foreign assets. What does that have to say about the conditions going on at that period of time? They can't be very good.
0: Let us move to our fourth example, the fourth euro dollar crisis, which started, let's call it January 2018, a slower burning dollar shortage that was global again. Eventually it would uh, break out in March, 2020. But in this graph that we're looking at, we're not including 2020. It's just through 2019 2019. And again, we've got foreign exchange, this other, and the Chinese currency. And I suppose that you're drawing our attention here to September 2018, where we start seeing a rise in other holdings again, other foreign yeah, assets. Yeah,
1: again, it's sort of the first half, second half. The first half was still globally synchronized growth, you know, 2017, all that. And even though those, we didn't see a rise in foreign exchange on the PBOC's balance sheet, at least it wasn't falling. At least things seemed stable. And there was a modest increase What's in that. And during that
0: time... And other was falling. Right, but the other other foreign good. assets
1: were declining, which maybe was the PBOC yes. saying, we'll let you guys have some, let your big banks have some of your dollar reserves back. And then, of course, we get to... You know the summer of twenty eighteen. currency was rising too. Yep, or you know the dollars up. The you know we got inversion in the euro dollar futures curve. We got all sorts of stuff going on in the summer of twenty eighteen. Jay Powell says it's all everything's great inflation. Mario Draghi says the same thing, and all of a sudden we start to see changes in on the PBOC's balance sheet. And as I wrote in October of early October of twenty eighteen, the Chinese were warning you that things were going the wrong way. We saw RRR cuts and things like that, and then all of a sudden. Now we get a rise in other foreign assets again, which is why? why? Why a rise in other foreign assets? Why would the PBOC be in such a position that it's imposing upon its own big banks to say, bring me your dollar deposit?
0: Right, right, exactly. Two step crisis there. In the first half, things seemed to be going better. Other was falling. The currency was rising. Then the currency started to fall. And a little bit later, others started to rise. Which brings us to present day, Jeff. Again, same pattern of graphs. We're looking at the same things, other foreign assets, uh, foreign exchange, and the Chinese currency. And the, back to the how we began the show. We were talking about it would be a good thing if we saw the People's Bank foreign assets rise, foreign exchange assets rise. But once we dive in deeper here, this very first graph, Jeff, it's not the good part that's rising. It's the other that's rising.
1: Exactly. It's, what, we really, what we're really, what we really saying is that if there was a dollar reflation, euro dollar flood, even just a modest euro dollar increase, we would see on the People's, ba- People's Bank of China balance sheet foreign exchange part of foreign assets rise. And that's not what we're seeing at all this year. In fact, uh, foreign exchange has been even more suspiciously straight line than, than ever before. And the only thing that has risen Is other foreign assets. And not just that, again, there are no coincidences here. Other foreign assets on the PBOC's balance sheet have risen at the same time the Chinese Yuan stopped rising. So going back to January, the Yuan was going up against the US dollar, which was reflation, good things, dollar flows, that kind of that kind of a situation. Since January, again, this entire year, as we've talked about before in the tick data, this entire year has been the opposite of inflation in terms of the monetary system. So on, just from China's perspective, you have CNY, which is no longer rising, and now you have other foreign assets showing up in the PBOC's, uh, PBOC's balance sheet, which again, as we go look back through the uh, last 15 years, is a suggestion, a hint, an allegation that maybe not everything is really good in the euro dollar system that the Chinese are imposing upon their own banks. If that is indeed what's what's going on here, it's it's And we don't know this for sure because they don't tell us, we don't know what other foreign assets are because it's other, it's miscellaneous, but it seems reasonable to conclude that they're doing the same kind of thing, this last resort kind of a measure saying, we need more of these bank reserves on our balance sheet for some purpose. And that purpose happens to coincide with all of these dollar shortage indications that we get, including... The Chinese own currency exchange rate,
0: and then it's also corroborated. You mentioned it a moment ago by Tick, the Treasury International Capital report hints of the same thing at the exact same time that the currency froze, not as much as in previous years, but definitely got uh, stuck in a very. It's no longer dam. rising, right? We I mean, that's
1: that's it. it, it was yes. going up at a forty-five degree angle. Now it's it's sideways up and down, but it's mostly sideways, which is something changed in January. That's really the important point there. As we
0: say the Americans
1: corroborated. It's it's not a random coincidence. We see this in tick data, we see this in treasury market behavior, we see this in all sorts of financial indications that say something changed around January and February, and we can see it in all of these various places. And when you put all these pieces together in the Euro dollar context, it makes a very compelling, if not overwhelming, comprehensively intuitive, uh, internally consistent story.
0: And it's not an inflation story. The part I wanted to uh, mention here was that when I keep saying tick, what I'm referring to is that the Treasury International Capital Report shows what the holdings are by China and Belgium, and we combine them, uh, assuming that that all belongs to China, that those holdings of U.S. Treasuries stopped rising, started falling in January of 2021. That's what I was trying to say.
1: Altogether, again, it's not random coincidence here. We're seeing these things happen at the same time, Because there is a common unifying factor behind them. And when we're talking about the PBOC's balance sheet is is maybe as counterintuitive as it is, that means dollar. That means euro dollar. So the People's Bank of China's balance sheet is a very good place to start trying to figure out and understand what must be going on in the euro dollar. You certainly can't go to the Federal Reserve or Jay Powell because they're off there talking about the unemployment rate and God knows what when the Chinese kind of have to deal in dollar reality because they don't have any other choice like most of the rest of the world. They can't bury their head in the sands of econometrics instead have to focus on real money in real world, which again, I'll say it again, maybe the best indication we have of how the dollar is actually behaving, the real funding monetary markets behind them is on the, the communist Chinese central bank balance sheet.
0: Jeff, I had taken the previous week off. I needed to tan myself. So is there anything that you wanted to bring to the audience attention because we've been off the air for a couple of weeks uh, that we didn't cover last week or anything to look forward to? Any wrap up final words on this? episode?
1: It's just I think the our, our what we're trying to get at here, but just recently, not just recently, but over the certainly the last maybe most of this year is that in the mainstream media, the theme is too much money, inflation, overheating, red hot. When in every single, as I as I titled that one article about tick, it's been unambiguous. It's, it's it's unusually unambiguous how the deflationary monetary signals are all in the opposite direction: dollar shortage, deflationary potential, collateral problem. So on the on the one hand, you've got inflation. You know, bond rates are going to go skyrocket because of the inflation outbreak, and on the other, you have from the Chinese central bank on down a very consistent, concise story of no disinflation deflation dollar shortage. It's the exact opposite of what everything, what everybody's been saying in the media.